Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. And I also have some stuff in a blog I've been writing in for over two and a half years now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is Saturday, July 31st, 2021. And I put together an episode yesterday that I was going to publish that was really going to begin in earnest the timeline from the beginning of 2019, the really crucial beginning point of the perfect storm that has brought us to some of the most important milestones in the history of college sports. And as I was doing a little more research to polish up this last episode, I saw on the NCAA website a press release announcing that the NCAA Board of Governors is going to convene a constitutional convention that is going to rebuild the structure of college sports from the ground up. And this is uh, really interesting stuff. But I want to go ahead and get this episode in because this is the perfect segue into how the NCAA went from its arrogant, my way or the highway, we're above the law stance in early 2019, to all of a sudden believing that in order to stay relevant at all in the college sports marketplace, it needs to just tear down the building and start from scratch. So if you've been wondering, like me, where in the world the NCAA Board of Governors has been since June 21st, 2021, when the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously rejected the NCAA's view of the world. Now we know. It turns out that they've been working diligently and doing double time to figure out a way to reimagine college sports. That's a word that they use. And I think that's a word that Mark Emmert used in his July 15th, 2021 interview with a small group of reporters. And I want to go through this announcement that was posted on the NCAA propaganda machine website. And then I also want to go through the charge document. So in this press release, they provide a link to the Constitution Review Committee Charter. And then I want to talk a little bit about the history of NCAA reform. And I want to go back to some resources that I talked about in the early episodes when I was talking about presidential leadership and control of college athletics and how that perfectly correlated to the reform movements, going, really going back to the 1929 Carnegie Report and some of the philosophies that underpinned those recommendations and that kind of thinking, and then bring them forward to some of the more current analyses of NCAA reform and college athletics reform. And I'm going to refer back to some resources from people who are well-respected and have devoted a lot of time looking at reform in college athletics. And one of the most important and undeniable truths that comes from the external 
critics, objective, truly objective, independent, external critics. And, and this is universal, regardless of what their starting point is. And this ranges from academic critics to Walter Byers in his 1995 expose on the NCAA. But they universally agree on one thing. The NCAA is incapable of changing on its own. And this pattern has repeated itself time and time again over the last 50 years, since really the beginning of the modern NCAA era in the 1950s. And all of these reform movements have failed in large part because they are looking to the NCAA to do a critical self-examination and engage in some introspective thinking and then voluntarily change its governance structure and its business model. And they're not going to do it because the incentives to just roll along and try to keep the money coming in, because that's what this is all about. It's about preserving market share and money. And what you're going to hear from the NCAA here and this new constitutional <laughs> committee is just more NCAA BS. And you get a bunch of bureaucratic speak and you get a bunch of fancy words and lofty, vague principles, but nothing that goes to the heart of the problem with the business model as it exists now. So again, this is just another NCAA mirage. And they are using fancy words and important people and noble concepts, but there's no there there. And when we look at the timing of this and what the NCAA is claiming they're going to get done in the next three and a half months, you just have to ask yourself what they're really thinking here. And that goes to the last thing I'm going to talk about, and that is why are they doing this now? What's their motivation? And what do they hope to achieve on the backside? So let's take a look at this press release. And again, this was on uh, Friday, yesterday. It doesn't have the time. The new website when, with these propaganda releases on the Media Center link doesn't have the actual time. The old website did. So we don't know exactly how late in the day this was. But uh, this has all the earmarks of a Friday news dump where you want to get the story out there so you can say that it's in the record, but you don't want a lot of scrutiny and you don't want a lot of discussion about it. And that's an interesting tactic. And that was similar to the tactic that Emmert used with this July 15th, 2021 interview, which occurred late on a Thursday, the 15th, but the story didn't break until Friday. And then you didn't get the kind of discussion and careful scrutiny. If there is such a thing as careful scrutiny in today's media cycles, but you just didn't have a lot of discussion about it. And it just goes into the record as this accepted principle. It's this spontaneous consent tactic and the consensus principle tactic that the NCAA is so good at utilizing. And so they put these stories into the media, into the mainstream, out into the public domain, and they do it in a way where they limit discussion and debate. And then on the backside, they can say, well, everybody agrees. Nobody disagreed. So again, they've been very good at that. But I want to just note that the, the people who speak out here are, are interesting. So we have Jack DeJoya, who is the new president or the new chairman of the NCAA Board of Governors, and he took over for Michael Drake, who is now running the University of California system. DeJoy is the president of uh, Georgetown University, and he's been pretty low-key. We haven't heard a lot from him. Drake was really out into the public domain, and he was the face of the early nil propaganda campaign in October of 2019 
when the NCAA working group was putting out all this rah rah, we're gonna make, we're really gonna take some action on name, image, and likeness. And Drake was the face of that. DeJoy has been really a quiet president, and of course he takes over at a time when <laughs> the NCAA is just getting spanked left and right in all of the important decision making forums. But he, he has a few comments and basically he says some of the propaganda you would expect. And he says, this effort will position the NCAA to continue providing meaningful opportunities for current college athletes and those for generations to come. The NCAA is right there getting it done. And Emmert has, has his usual BS. And he says, this is not about tweaking the model we have now. This is about wholesale transformation so we can set a sustainable course for college sports for decades to come. We need to stay focused on the thing that matters most, helping students be as successful as they can be as both students and athletes. And this next quote comes from Robert Gates, former U.S. Secretary of Defense under Bush. And then I think he carried over into Obama's uh, term. And he also was the president at Texas A&M at one point. And he is a quote unquote independent member of the Board of Governors. So he's lending his independent voice. And I just want to note before I read this quote that this is the first time in my recollection, and again, I've been following this pretty closely, that any member of the Board of Governors who was not the chair was speaking publicly on behalf of the Board of Governors. And here's what Gates says. Under the current structure, expectations for the association vastly exceed its capabilities. The NCAA has significant responsibility but little authority to fulfill those responsibilities. The broader association cannot move quickly. Power is diffuse. Until we can better align the mission of the association with its authority, the NCAA will not be able to play the role it should play in governing college sports. We cannot go on as we are. That's powerful stuff right there. But what's important about this release to me, not substantively, I'm going to talk about Gates's quotes because they reflect to me just a fundamental misunderstanding about the existing governance and, and business model. But you have heavy hitters here who are normally not out in the public relations domain for the NCAA. And they're all singing the same song. I think that there is this sense that the NCAA needs to step it up a little bit in terms of how they're getting their message out. More importantly, who is offering the message? I just don't think Mark Emmert, despite all the rehabilitation attempts that the NCAA is using right now and this charm offensive that's expressed in the makeover in their new website, I, I just don't think people are listening to Emmert. So you bring in the, the chair of the Board of Governors, and then you bring in the highest profile independent member. And remember, there are five independent members. And I, I use independent in, in, in quotes because they are selected by the current Board of Governors. There's just some self-selection in, and they're not going to bring in anybody who isn't hook, line, and sinker, NCAA status quo down the line. And, and, and therein lies part of the problem. And, and that's what these reformers have pointed out. The NCAA just perpetuates its bureaucracy by bringing in like-minded people or people who are insiders. And there really isn't any true independent external check on the decision-making process and the governance process. 
So these five independent members came in as a recommendation of the Commission on College Basketball, which was formed in October of 2017 to deal with some basketball-related scandals, and they issued a report in April of 2018, about six months of work, and that's relevant too because I'm going to compare the timeline for the CCB with the timeline for this constitutional convention. It's just going to start from scratch and completely remake the NCAA and, and, and college sports, and they're going to do it in three and a half months. But the recommendation from the Commission on College Basketball was that these conflicts of interest that exist in NCAA governance and the conflict between the Division One Board of Directors and the Board of Governors and all this crossover representation and all this stuff that really makes a, a mockery of the governance process and the decision-making process, that needed some independent oversight. So the commission recommended the addition of five independent representatives. It didn't really get into a lot of detail. In fact, that was thrown in at the very end of the 55-page report, and it was a half a page. But the commission acknowledged the conflicts, and they didn't want to dwell on them because it's a really bad look for the NCAA. But they, I think, felt compelled to point that out and offer a solution. So it was one of the few things that the NCAA actually adopted. But instead of having these people appointed by outside bodies or having an open election process or some way to act as a check on just bringing in another group of kind of self-reinforcing like-minded decision makers. The NCAA just kept it all in-house and the Board of Governors decides who these people are. And it's interesting here because you really don't hear a lot from these people and Gates is is an authoritative voice and and they have some impressive people among the, the five independent members. But uh, Gates is probably the best spokesperson here if you're trying to just get some name association with your message. But I want to talk a little bit just about the way that this is structured. And when I get into the charge of this constitutional convention committee, you're going to see this theme come up again. So when Gates says that the expectations for the association vastly exceed its capabilities and that the NCAA has significant responsibility but little authority to fulfill those responsibilities, you're getting a framing of these issues that I think is going to be interesting if it gains traction because I think what you might see is the NCAA arguing two things at the same time. One, we're going to this whole process and the NCAA can't do all the things that it's doing now. But this talk of a limited authority is really important. I think there's a hidden message here and I, I want to, to talk about that because there are really some false premises that are built into the way that Gates has framed these issues. So I just want to break down some of the things he says, and then I want to talk about why we're at this point and why the NCAA is now talking about this tension between its responsibilities and its claim of limited authority. So when Gates makes that statement, the NCAA has significant responsibility but little authority, that is simply not true. In fact, the opposite was true until the summer of 2021. And the NCAA was operating as a rogue nation with unlimited authority and very little responsibility and accountability. When you look at what the NCAA actually did, it was hosting championships to bring in money. And the only championship that mattered was the March Madness championship. They had virtually nothing else to do with the most important aspects of the 
business of big time college sports. And then they had all these grand committees and conferences, and they had an army of bureaucrats at the national office. But some people have referred to the NCAA as uh, the world's best paid party planner. (laughs) That's not really an exaggeration, I don't think. But they talk about enforcement and infractions. And I think when they talk about responsibilities, that's part of what they're targeting. And that's going to be important, too, when we look at what the NCAA really wants to enhance its uh, authority to meet that single responsibility. But even that is an illusion because the NCAA has spent a very limited portion of its budget on enforcement and infractions, and that's been a conscious decision. And they have developed this infractions and enforcement process that's based on show trials and scare tactics. So they will occasionally come at uh, a school without warning. And the tactic is asymmetrical warfare. It's like a guerrilla tactic. And the the power of that is that you never know when they're coming in. And people who have been on the receiving end of the NCAA's random enforcement and infractions process would attest to that. But the other thing that's important to understand about the enforcement and infractions process is that as currently structured, it is already delegated down to the institutional level and there is a philosophy of self-reporting and self-policing. So this notion that the NCAA has just been put in this untenable position and it has these responsibilities to investigate all the corruption in college sports and all the things that challenge the integrity of college sports is really overstated. And the NCAA, if it chose to, could beef up its enforcement staff and it could have a a more meaningful and uh, coherent process for addressing any claimed violations of NCAA rules or any encroachments on the integrity of college sports. So when Gates says that, that's really not true at all. And the other thing that I will point out in terms of the NCAA's autonomy and its authority is that because of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Tarkanian, and remember that was in 1988, and that was a case in which Jerry Tarkanian, former UNLV basketball coach, was challenging the NCAA's due process tactics in its enforcement and infractions process. And they came after him hard. It was an ugly battle. And the NCAA threw everything at Tarkanian. And it lasted for decades. And then Tarkanian ultimately won and got a settlement from the NCAA. But one of the arguments that Tarkanian made was that the NCAA was a state actor because of the authority that it exercised and it was acting as a a quasi-governmental entity in all these enforcement actions that ran through public universities. So that issue in this litigation made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court held that the NCAA was not a state actor. And the reason that was important is that Tarkanian was saying that he was entitled to all of the due process protections in this enforcement and infractions process that uh, a person would have in any action by a state actor or, or a government. And the uh, U.S. Supreme Court said, no, the NCAA is not a state actor, looking at the overall composition of the schools across all three divisions. And they said that the NCAA didn't have to provide federal due process protections. And that single decision was really important because it really gave 
the NCAA, or at least the NCAA, perceived it as having given it the green light to just do whatever the hell it wanted to do in its infractions and enforcement process. And the NCAA has exercised that authority, that discretion, that freedom from accountability to run roughshod over the rights of anyone that gets in the way of its true business purpose, and that is to preserve the status quo and its revenue streams and a control of the labor force. All these rules, these NCAA rules, eligibility rules, amateurism rules, recruiting rules, are designed to regulate the labor pool. And those are revenue-producing athletes, disproportionately African-American, and the infractions and enforcement process has come down disproportionately on those athletes. So the NCAA, far from having little authority, has had enormous authority and zero accountability. And it selectively decides what its responsibilities are going to be. So that's just a fundamental mischaracterization of how the NCAA has operated. And the reason you're hearing that kind of language now is that they, for the first time since the 1950s, have had substantial, meaningful, and real limitations placed on that authority. And that came through a unanimous Supreme Court decision. And up to now, at least, a rejection by the United States Congress of federal protections and immunities that would allow the NCAA to do whatever the hell it wants to do. So then the second part of this statement from Gates, the broader association cannot move quickly. Now, there's no question that the way that the NCAA is currently structured, it is clumsy, it is inefficient, and that's really the product of having products under the NCAA umbrella that have absolutely no business being there. And again, those uh, criticisms have been on the table for decades. So the NCAA is saying here, and I mentioned this a few episodes ago, but the NCAA is saying here that these are structural changes that need to happen and have uh, existed for a long time, and now's the time to act. But why is now the time to act? Well, I'll get to that in a second. But the other thing about the association not moving quickly, and this ties into the third part of that quote, the power is diffuse, and that's just simply not the case. In fact, the opposite is true. The FBS football interests are the power in the NCAA. There is no other power in the system. So the power hasn't been spread around. It has been aggregated and isolated to the Power Five conferences. They run the NCAA. There's no question about that. And yeah, does Division II have some independent authority in Division Three? Yes, they have their own independent governance structures under the broader NCAA umbrella, but they are not power players. And they could take their Division II product completely outside of the NCAA, have a glorified high school athletics association, and do everything they're doing now. And it wouldn't be a big deal. Simply wouldn't be a big deal. But that hasn't happened. And that's because everybody was happy with the status quo. And Division II and Division III were getting block grants from this March Madness money, and everybody's looking for a handout. And this carefully calibrated status quo that's been in place post-Board of Regents, and even more so post-realignment, the first realignment, has had everybody just floating along, happy as they can be. 
But <laughs> that tune has changed dramatically now in the summer of 2021. But this notion of not being able to move quickly, that's not true either, because look at what happened on name, image, and likeness. In going through the voluntary rules-making process, the NCAA dragged its feet. And one of the reasons this discussion is a perfect segue into the perfect storm analysis starting at the beginning of 2019 is that the NCAA never had any intention of acting on name, image, and likeness voluntarily. None. And the evidence proves that. The timeline proves that. The absence of rulemaking changes proves that. To this day, the NCAA hasn't changed a single rule on name, image, and likeness. But what did it do? Really, outside of the legislative process, they tried to make this look like it was this uh, decision that originated in the Division I Council and then was approved by the Division I Board of Directors and then was adopted into formal policy on this interim name, image, and likeness policy that went into effect on June 30th, seven hours and 40 minutes before the state nil laws went into effect. That was not a deliberative process, and there was no legislation there. It was policy, not legislation. And the NCAA information that they posted on their website is very clear to point out that the NCAA was not taking this action or requiring schools to do anything. This was a policy. Nothing more. And then the NCAA essentially said they weren't going to enforce any violations of the interim policy. So they acted very quickly on that. They acted outside of the legislative process. They acted outside of the divisional process. And this was basically an edict that came down from the NCAA national office informed by its lawyers and lobbyists and its legal strategists to try to minimize liability for the NCAA and then shift responsibility to the institutions. And that happened on a dime. It happened in the snap of a finger. So the NCAA can move as quickly as it needs to through this dysfunctional power structure where the power isn't diffuse. It resides with the Power Five conferences. It resides with Mark Emmert and the national office executives, and it lies with outside lawyers and lobbyists, the best that money can buy. That has been the true business model of the NCAA. And Gates's characterization here is simply false. So we're getting more propaganda because all this is coming from the inside. It's all running through the filter of NCAA history, NCAA governance dysfunction, and NCAA national office inaction. So then he goes on to say, we have to align the mission of the association with its authority. And until we do that, the NCAA will not be able to play the role it should play in governing college sports. Okay, which brings me to one of the most important points with this press release and this movement to change the Constitution, to tear down the existing system. What would July 31st of 2021 look like if we press rewind to the summer of 2020? And it's before the Austin decision. It's while the NCAA and Power Five are lobbying like hell in the Senate to get federal protections and immunities to protect the existing business model. They weren't talking about change. They weren't going to the United States Senate for help in restructuring college sports because they were happy with the status quo. They were happy with all these things that Robert Gates and Mark Emmert and Jack DeJoya are describing as profound dysfunctions that have to be changed immediately. They were okay with that a year ago. There was no suggestion that there was any problem with the structure of college sports, with NCAA governance, or any aspect of the business model. None. So why are these people panicked now? Because they see their empire slipping 
away. But pressing rewind to 2020, if as the perfect storm plays out, let's assume that some things play out differently. Let's assume that the NCAA gets the Rubio bill or the NCAA bill or the Wicker bill brought to a vote before the change in the administration and before the flip of the Senate. And Wicker's bill was going to give the NCAA everything it wanted, absolute antitrust immunity, absolute preemption of any state laws interfering with NCAA compensation limits, and a provision that athletes can't be employees. But that antitrust thing was a problem in the Senate. So let's say that they got preemption and no employees out of the Wicker bill. Then with that action, you've eliminated state legislatures. You've taken states completely out of the regulatory field. So all this nil stuff just disappears, all of it. It just disappears with the stroke of a pen. And you don't have any state laws. You don't have any executive orders. You don't have any institutional policies. The NCAA is the only entity that can make those decisions under this wicker bill. And the NCAA has claimed two-thirds of the Iron Throne that it's seeking. Then let's assume that in Austin, as that case goes through the briefing process and then oral argument and then a decision with the wicker bill in place, that... The U.S. Supreme Court grants the NCAA some form of antitrust immunity, whether it is outright antitrust immunity saying that the NCAA simply is immune from antitrust laws because it's not engaged in commercial activity or because of the deference that Board of Regents gave to amateurism, allegedly, that they should have this quick look or deferential abbreviated review where the NCAA just walks into a federal court in any antitrust suit and slaps down the amateurism card and says, we win. If those two things happen, or, or one of those two things happen, we are not having a conversation on July 30th of 2021 about fundamentally restructuring the NCAA. It's not going to happen because what the NCAA's campaign was about all along was preserving the status quo, and they were spending hundreds of millions of dollars to do it. They spent almost half a billion just in O'Bannon and Austin alone to preserve the status quo. Every bill that was introduced in the Senate in 2020 was designed to preserve the status quo. The bill that was introduced in the House, this Gonzalez-Cleaver bill, was designed to preserve the status quo. Nobody said a word about all of these fundamental, unsustainable, untenable structural issues in the way that the NCAA does its business, the way that it's governed. So now I want to talk a little bit about this charter, this link from the, the propaganda release on Friday. They had a link to the Constitution Review Committee charter. And I just want to read some of this because it is just breathtaking in its dishonesty about the current need for a complete restructure of the NCAA governance model. So here we go. The very first paragraph under the title preamble, the time is now to transform college sports and reimagine the NCAA system of governance. The current NCAA constitution and governance model were built in a time much different than today. The association's actions related to the student-athlete experience and support, or in some cases inaction, has not gone unnoticed. This action will require innovative thinking and bold next steps, but if the association is to remain relevant, it must lean forward and start with a clean sheet of paper and must do it now. What does that mean? 
It means a couple things. First of all, it means we lost our battle to preserve the status quo. We lost control of the narrative, and we are not sitting on the iron throne of college sports regulation. It also means, in terms of remaining relevant, that we still want a piece of the pie. We have to fight somehow to be a player in the next decisions that are going to be made externally. Not within the NCAA, but externally, because the NCAA has refused to change. These external influences are necessary to force the NCAA to change. But for the NCAA's bureaucratic purposes, the only way it stays relevant is to hold on to the March Madness money. That's it. And that's what I think uh, this is about. And I also think this is kind of an immunity shield to any really draconian action in the Senate that's going to essentially render the NCAA irrelevant. So they come out and say it. They are in a battle to remain relevant. And they have just come to this view in the last six weeks. And on June uh, 20th, the day before the Austin decision, you're not going to see this committee charter. You're not going to see the press release. And as I go through this charter, it's important to look at what is not here. And there's nothing about how the NCAA is going to get its money. There's no discussion about its relationship to the FBS schools, to the Power Five, and to the football money. There's no discussion specifically about the March Madness contract. How can you be talking about fundamental change and not talk about the most important economic factors in the existing structure and the historical evolution of that structure under the NCAA umbrella? How can you not talk about that? If you're serious about change here, because those two components of the business model have driven NCAA governance. So again, this is just a, a breathtaking piece of BS that's designed to try to keep the NCAA in the conversation. So the next thing they talk about is the composition of the Constitution Review Committee. And this goes to one of the most important points that these external critics of college sports have identified and have reinforced for decades now, and that these reform efforts and committees and commissions have said all along, and that is nothing can change in the NCAA so long as the people deciding what the NCAA looks like are NCAA insiders. So let's look at this Constitution Review Committee. It has 22 members, including 11 Division I members, three Division II members, three Division III members, three student athletes, and two independent NCAA Board of Governors members. So every single person on this committee is deep in the belly of the existing bureaucracy, this corrupt bureaucracy, which they admit by the very existence of this constitutional committee needs to be changed because it simply doesn't work. And if it doesn't change, they, the NCAA will be an irrelevant institution. So let's look at the, the Division I members. And again, it is weighted, heavily weighted to Division I. And that just reflects the reality. That's where the money is. That's where the, the big time actors are. And you have the same model in governance. They are repeating the very same model that created the problems they're trying to solve. And you have this weighted voting and weighted decision-making to the money players. And then you throw in some token representation for Division II, Division Three, and some token student-athlete members, and then two independent members of the Board of Governors who are in part responsible for this mess. 
So let's look at the Division I members. These 11 members, you have five presidents and chancellors, four athletics directors, and two conference commissioners. Again, those 11 people are going to be 11 people who have absolutely failed at their fundamental uh, responsibility of governing intercollegiate athletics. All those categories, those three categories, particularly the presidents and the conference commissioners, they created this problem. And then you're going to look to them to solve it. That, that's insanity. It's the definition of insanity. And it's also proof to me that there is no genuine intention of doing anything that's going to really take the NCAA business model to task. And then you have three Division three members and all that. I've been down the rest of the list, but only the Division one members and then these uh, two independent members of the NCAA Board of Governors. That's 13 votes there out of 22. And look, whatever comes out of this is going to be unanimous. <laughs> That's already a foregone conclusion. And I believe that they already have drafted the proposed changes. And this is going to look a lot like the Commission on College Basketball that I mentioned earlier. And again, that was a single sport issue specific reform movement. And it was an NCAA commission. They tried to pitch it as quote unquote independent. They called it the independent commission on college basketball. But Mark Emmert and the Division I Board of Directors appointed all the people on the commission of college basketball. And it, it had uh, six months to do its work. And it spent an inordinate amount of time on a, a straw issue. And that was the one and done. We have to get rid of one and done. One and done's the problem here. And they railed on one and done and talked about uh, how that should be solved. And then ultimately said, but we have no control over it. Only the MPA can do that. But that was just a deflection. There's been zero done on one and done. There's not even any discussion about one and done and the horrible impact it's had on college basketball. So... On the back side of that, there was a lot of flowery language. It did nothing on name, image, and likeness, although they acknowledged the need for the NCAA to do something on name, image, and likeness. And remember, this is in 2017, 2018. So on the back side of the Commission on College Basketball, virtually nothing got done. But the reason that is an interesting analog to this Constitutional Convention Committee is that the parameters for the Commission on College Basketball were pretty narrow when you look at the charge. And it got its work done in six months and then published a 50-page report that has had, again, very little impact. But let's look at what's happening here. We've got the same kind of process, NCAA insiders all the way, and they're trying to make it appear as if it's independent, but it's not. And you have the complete restructuring of the fundamental pillars of college athletics. And these people claim they're going to get it done in three and a half months. Three and a half months, and the committee hasn't even been formed yet. So we don't know who's on the committee. And that can only be possible if the NCAA either is going to do what it did with the Commission on College Basketball and adopt a couple of changes that really aren't that consequential. Or it is going to make some meaningful structural changes, but those are going to come from the templates that were set by external reform-minded critics and have been on the table for decades. And I'm going to be paying attention to what's coming out of this constitutional committee and, and what it looks like on the back side, because a lot of these reform efforts, to the extent that they defer to NCAA self-regulation and self-governance and self-change, 
they have been virtually ineffective. And if that's where this thing winds up, it's just going to be another failed attempt to do what a lot of people know is necessary. And let's just kill the snake. Let's just disband the NCAA. In fact, I titled this episode, The Five-Minute NCAA Constitutional Convention Meeting. And the reason for that is to do what needs to be done here. This group of people could go in and do their introductions and start the proceedings and then put one motion on the table, and that is to disband the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And then take a vote and get your majority and then move on and leave to some external body the dissolution plan. If the NCAA is serious about just tearing this building down and then rebuilding from the foundation up, that constitutional convention meeting should be a five-minute meeting, and then they turn it over to external regulators. That's the only intelligent response if the NCAA is serious about fundamental reform. And that's not going to happen because all these people still are clinging to the hope that they can hang on to revenue streams that will allow Mark Emmert to make four million dollars a year and his upper level executives to make uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the staff liaisons for the Constitutional Committee are three executives whose salaries are in the mid six figures. So the Scott Beerby, the general counsel, he's upwards of $500,000 a year. And Stan Wilcox, vice president of regulatory affairs, he's upwards of 400K. And then uh, Carrie Van Sinas, she wasn't on the Schedule J, the last Schedule J that's publicly available. But there's no conflict of interest there, is there? (laughs) There's no incentive there to preserve the bureaucratic status quo. And I don't think these people are going to be talking about the salaries of the NCAA executives when they're looking at this fundamental reform. And then in this charge document, when you go to the individual categories of potential change, these are just retreads. This is just the same old stuff warmed over agenda items for reform where there has been no meaningful reform. So membership criteria, accountability and meeting membership criteria, academic success, health and safety, eligibility and recruiting, inclusion and equity, allocation of resources, sustainability of sports participation, championship opportunities, playing rules, and areas not yet defined. <laughs> but they're going to focus on enforcement and the allocation of responsibility between the National Association and the schools and conferences. But again, that's been on the table for decades. NCAA has held on to to the responsibility for conducting the show trials because that's how they still fear into the membership. And that goes a long way in enforcement and compliance. So then they talk about drafting constitutional articles that address current gaps and deficiencies of the organization's governance and align authority and responsibility. So I want to see those constitutional changes and those new constitutional provisions. I'm guessing that there are going to be people involved in this who are going to see the NCAA Constitution for the very first time. I've spent a lot of time in my uh, writing and my speaking on the NCAA Constitution, and I come back to it again and again. And with the exception of Principle 2.9 in Article 2, which is the principles for the conduct of intercollegiate athletics in the NCAA Constitution, it has six articles. And that Article 2 contains their lofty principles that really are so profoundly inconsistent with the business model that they really 
aren't that important. That's why these people aren't familiar with them and why you don't hear them quoted. The only one is Article 2.9, the principle of amateurism. And that's been relevant in these antitrust suits because the NCAA has argued that they get a free pass under antitrust laws because of amateurism. And that has been uh, sliced and diced and dissected. And after what now, 11 years of litigation in O'Bannon and Austin and a half a billion dollars in legal fees and settlements, the NCAA still cannot articulate an intelligent definition of amateurism. And the district court in both O'Bannon and Austin explicitly said that. And a unanimous Supreme Court on June 21st of 2021 acknowledged that. And I think that's one of the reasons that the Supreme Court was, I think, a little bit frustrated with the NCAA and its appeal in the Austin case. And part of the reason that you saw unanimity there, because they just saw an organization that was so out of touch with the principles it claimed to hold that it needed to be sent a message. And it was sent a message. And again, on June 20th, the day before that Austin decision, you're not going to hear any of this propaganda that you see in this charge document, this uh, constitutional convention document, because the NCAA didn't give a damn about any of this stuff. They wanted to preserve the status quo. So there's not going to be any meaningful change here. And we'll take a look at what they are going to try to do and how they frame the issues. But a couple of bullet points towards the end here. Let's see, what do they want from this constitutional committee? The duties and responsibilities of the committee and gather input and engage campus conference personnel and establish milestones and metrics. All this fluffy bureaucratic speak that doesn't mean anything. But this one's important. Maintain confidentiality and discretion in the course of the committee work while providing periodic updates to the Board of Governors and to those designated by the Board. Let's see. Recognize and adhere to deliberations and recommendations that represent the best interests of college athletics, not based on self-interest, employment interest, or the interests of affiliations. (laughs) The people who are going to be overseeing this and acting as the liaisons are just drenched in self-interest, employment interest, and the interests of their affiliations. (laughs) Again, you just can't make this stuff up. And then on the timing of this thing, I just have a couple of thoughts there. One is that when you compare this timeline to the timeline that the NCAA set for name, image, and likeness rules changes, which it ultimately did in less than a week when they were forced into a corner and had no choice. But they spread this thing out over two years and said, this could take years. This is a you know, like solving health care, and this is a serious problem, and we have to have thorough input from all the stakeholders, and we need to be very deliberate and cautious and all that stuff. And then with the Commission on College Basketball, they're looking at profound changes and fundamental change. And when Mark Emmert announced the formation of the Commission on College Basketball in a statement on October 11th of 2017, he says that, uh, let's see, the first paragraph of this, this is just, this is warmed over Mark Emmert, this constitutional committee. When you hear this language, I'm going to read from the Commission on College Basketball. It's going to sound very familiar in terms of the tone and the rhetoric. So here's what Emmert says on October 11th of 2017. The recent news of a federal investigation into fraud in college basketball made it very clear that NCAA needs to make substantive changes to the way we operate and do so quickly, quickly. Time is of the essence. Individuals who break the trust on which college sports is based have no place here. While I believe the vast majority of coaches follow the rules, the culture of silence in college basketball enables bad actors, and we need them out of the game. 
We must take decisive action. This is not a time for half measures or incremental change. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? You have that same tone that time is of the essence. We need profound change. Something has to happen immediately, immediately. And then they define the scope of the commission's work. And then he closes this press release out. He says, we need to do right by student athletes. I believe we can and we must find a way to protect the integrity of college sports by addressing both sides of the coin. Fairness and opportunity for college athletes coupled with the enforcement capability to hold accountable those who undermine the standards of our community. And you have to uh, remember something else here. And this got virtually zero press coverage. But the NCAA has always wanted subpoena power. And in, in talking about their enforcement and infractions authority, they want to have the ability to act like a prosecutorial agency, like the Justice Department. They want subpoena power and the ability to go in and compel documents and testimony to make their case in the infractions and enforcement process and in the criminal trials that followed those indictments. And actually, the indictments were in September of 2017. And then you had this trial, and it involved this guy named uh, Gatto. He was an Adidas rep, I think. And then some African-American assistant coaches who were caught up in this deal to try to steer athletes to certain schools and then to certain agents in exchange for money. And it was just really a ridiculous, silly, stupid criminal story, honestly. But in that criminal proceeding, the National Collegiate Athletic Association filed a motion to intervene in that criminal case for the sole purpose of obtaining the dirt. They wanted all of the documents. And in this sting that led to the indictments and then these criminal trials, the FBI and the Justice Department came in and they ha had people wearing wires and they were recording telephone conversations and they had all kinds of dirt and it was salacious. And a lot of it had absolutely nothing to do with the issues in the criminal trial. But the NCAA intervened to try to get all of that material. And the judge, who was pretty NCAA friendly in the way he characterized the theory of the uh, prosecution's case, he issued an opinion and just said, look, you're way out of line here. And some of this stuff is so embarrassing and so personal and so infused with innuendo and rumor and speculation and bad faith that we're just putting it under seal. Nobody's going to have access to it. And who the hell do you think you are coming in here and thinking that you're going to get that information? You're not even going to get the, the stuff that's relevant to the case. <laughs> you sure as heck aren't going to have access to this dirt. And the NCAA wanted to be in the business of digging up dirt and then using it in their enforcement and infractions process. And then in this Jerry Moran bill, that came out in February of 2021, one of the most important pieces of that legislation that didn't get a word of media coverage is that through this entity that Jerry Moran was going to set up, it was going to give the National Collegiate Athletic Association the authority to serve subpoenas in its enforcement and infractions process. So this notion of on the authority side, in terms of responsibility and capability on the one hand and authority on the other, the NCAA has been seeking for decades the ability to serve subpoenas and act as an independent rogue prosecutorial state with no accountability. So that's where they're coming from. And so when I hear Robert Gates talking about uh, these issues and framing them 
in terms of responsibility and capabilities on the one side and authorities on the other, I'm immediately thinking that when they come in here, they may be looking at some type of regulatory structure and external regulatory oversight that would give them the ability to act as a rogue prosecutorial entity. And that's been on the table. We can't rule that out. So when, when I see the vagueness of this and I look at the timing of this and the timing is important. So why do they want to get this done? by November. Well, if you think about what's going to happen between now and November that's of any consequence in college sports, you've got the conference realignment thing and that will play itself out. But in terms of the external regulation of big time college sports and the NCAA, what's going to happen in the Senate here is going to be really important. And I think the NCAA is looking to get its narratives set to get some momentum with them, which is why they're bringing out Gates and they're bringing out DeJoya and they're covering up Emmert to try to lend some credibility to this narrative. But in in three and a half months, you're not going to be able to do an intelligent, thoughtful, meaningful, productive makeover of the entire governance structure of college sports. This is not, it's not going to happen. It can't happen. So they're just going to be reshuffling the deck and you're going to have the same dealers. That's the way this card game is going to be played. But this three and a half month time frame perfectly aligns with how the Senate is likely to timeline any changes in college sports. And if the NCAA is positioning itself to get something like these beefed up authorities through something like the Moran bill, and they're basically falling on their sword for public relations purposes, again, this, is, this ties perfectly into how they lied about name, image, and likeness. It was all public relations on the benefit side, but on the legal side and then the legislative side, it was about screwing the athletes and getting ironclad, iron-fisted federal protections and immunities that would have ended the athletes' rights movement in its tracks. And they didn't get it. And because they didn't get it, now they're going with plan B, and it is a public relations campaign. And it's designed to allow the NCAA to get as much as it can possibly get from the United States Senate under the circumstances. And and the circumstances right now aren't very good for the NCAA. And there's so many things that are going to play out that are beyond its control. But if it can get some, some stability and get a little shot in the arm from the Senate through some kind of beefed up authority with the promise that they're really, again, these are promises. And until these changes are implemented, don't take them to the bank. And even if they, some changes are approved and they are voted on in January, the January 2022 meeting, don't expect that they're actually going to be implemented. And that's true with some of the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball. They didn't accept all those recommendations. And I've written at length about that. But where we are right now with the NCAA and this newfound need to completely remake the association, we're at the propaganda level. We're at the public relations level. And based on how they structured this, there is zero indication or evidence that they're going to come out with anything that results in intelligent, meaningful, productive change in the way that the NCAA conducts its business. And one more thing on this timing. Just, what, 16 days ago, on July 15th, 2021, when Emmert had that interview with a small group of reporters, he made it clear 
in his reimagining of college sports. And he was talking about all the things on July 15th that the Board of Governors and Robert Gates and Jack uh, DeJoya are talking about on July 30th, just 15 days later. But Emmert, when talking about the magnitude of that kind of a makeover, he's saying that process would take years, years, not three and a half months. So how do you reconcile that? And you really don't have to when you view it as purely a public relations stunt and a facade that they're putting up to try to achieve an objective that has absolutely nothing to do with restructuring college sports or improving the experience for athletes. And that's just the way the NCAA rolls. And now I just want to speak a little bit before I close this thing out about this call for reform in the truly external independent reform movements and the people who have commented and written about NCAA reform. And I want to go to a book um, that is has one of my go-to books, and that is a 1999 book titled Unpaid Professionals, subtitled Commercialism and Conflict in Big-Time College Sports. And it was written by an economics professor who teaches at Smith College, and his name is Andrew Zimbalist. He's written a good number of books on college sports, and for the most part, I like what he does. And he approaches it with, I think, a a detachment and objectivity and a neutrality that's absent from what you get from in-system stakeholders. And he has his reality glasses on pretty well here. And in uh, some of his recommendations, he actually discusses honestly the professional option and that it's doable in the current structure. And But a lot of these books follow the same basic template, and I've read many of them. But in the last three years, I've, I've really focused on what has come out of the reform movement and from academic writers. And most of this stuff comes from an academic perspective. But the templates, basically, you, you get a history, then you get a description of the current state of the business model, and then you get suggestions for reform. But I just want to read a, a couple of passages. I'd also uh, note, with respect to this book, the U.S. Supreme Court actually cited Zimbalist's 1999 book, Unpaid Professionals. They did their own history, and and the history component's important because it does help frame the substantive issues that follow, and there are different ways to write history. And the Supreme Court was writing a history that really exposed amateurism as a sham. And I'm going to talk about that when I uh, break down the opinion in more detail. And I still haven't done that, but it's on my list of things to do. But they adopted some of Zimbalist's findings, historical findings, as they were painting that picture. So Zimbalist is an authoritative resource, probably more so now that the U.S. Supreme Court relied a lot on his writing in framing their their history. But in in a section called Reform in the Future, uh, Zimbalist talks about where the NCAA fits in all this. And he says, any dispassionate observer would concur that the piecemeal reforms in the NCAA over the past several decades have accomplished little. And just an aside there, remember, this is in 1999. So when he says the past several decades, he's taken this back really to the 1970s. And, and that's true. The NCAA and all these calls for reform date back at least 50 years, and I would say 70 years, even back to the 1950s. But Zimbalist goes on to say, Former executive director Walter Byers has harsh words about the reform process. Byers says, quote, The rewards have become so huge that the beneficiaries simply will not deny themselves even part 
of current or future spoils. I believe the record clearly shows the major hope for reform lies outside the collegiate structure. And that's the end of Byers quote. Remember, Byers is the NCAA's first full-time president, and he served in that role for, what, 37 years, I think, and then wrote in 1995 an expose, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting College Athletes, in which he just sliced and diced the NCAA and all of its core principles. But one of his central themes in that book is that the NCAA is so deeply in, in bed with all of these financial interests, and they have just become so dependent on that money and that gravy train that it is ridiculous to think that any meaningful reform is going to come from within the NCAA. And then Zimbalis goes on to say, that is, there is a commercial juggernaut that Byers believes is impossible to stop from within. The problem, however, is that the outside options are not very encouraging either. Congress has intermittently shown an interest in reforming college sports. The last spate of congressional reform bills occurred during 1988-1990 and was largely inspired by then-Maryland Representative Tom McMillan. None of McMillan's proposals made it out of committee. He goes on to say that the other alternative is a genuine reform movement among college presidents and trustees. And he says this too is a long shot. And Walter Byers in his 1995 book just slammed the presidents. And there's nothing in the record today or in the president's response to what has happened in the perfect storm, and particularly what's happening with this new realignment wave, to suggest that they are thinking about this in a way that will result in any meaningful change that is consistent and aligned with the values of higher education. So, as Zimbalist says, any serious structural reform must begin with a repudiation of tinkering. The underlying incentive system must be attacked and the pressures to raise revenue must be relieved. Reform must be far-reaching and its components must be articulated and self-reinforcing. While it is tempting to begin with a clean slate, it is also unrealistic. College sports are too popular and too ingrained in our culture to re-engineer them from the ground up. Even though the vast majority of athletics programs run a deficit, college athletics create significant positive externalities and have powerful support constituencies. And then Zimbalist goes on to outline a 10-point plan. So a lot of these books have these structured plans. And a lot of them are similar. And I'll point out a few of the things that Zimbalist talks about in 1999. And you know, one is changing the relationship between professional and college sports. But that's not going to happen unless professional sports choose to allow it to happen. And then professionalization. He speaks very realistically in 1999 about just letting this become a professional model. And he, he doesn't just reject that out of hand. He says that is a, a way that we could go. And then he uh, goes into some of uh, the things that really are common to all these reform plans. Take enforcement seriously, establish uh, clear academic standards, eliminate freshman eligibility. That one comes and goes and cut the number of scholarships, take control over summer camps and external regulation, shorten seasons and hours, all these things. Again, we hear again and again and again, and the NCAA claims to have addressed some of those things, but they haven't. And those time restrictions are a perfect example. They're a joke. 
And then he says, you'll give coaches long-term contracts, but no sneaker money. So keep, try to keep the Nike and Adidas and Reebok out of your business model and off your campuses. And then he talks about free speech and, uh, and some other stuff. But the, the long and short of that is that fundamental change in college sports is going to be very, very difficult because of its nature and how it has evolved. And it has evolved in large part because of these corrupt values that the NCAA has relied on for decades. And the only possibility here for meaningful reform is something like the Athletes' Bill of Rights, which is why I think it's so important to look at the bills that have been introduced and compare the NCAA-friendly bills with this Bill of Rights and then look at an external regulatory authority that has teeth and can really take control of the beast here and try to you know, beat it back into something that resembles a product that can be aligned with the uh, missions of higher education. That's the only option here. And this NCAA-initiated uh, last-ditch attempt uh, that they have gussied up with important people and r regal language is just another piece of NCAA BS. That's all it is. So I'll keep an eye on it, and it'll be interesting to see, again, the extent to which the NCAA borrows from themes that it has steadfastly and self-righteously rejected in the past because they encroach on their corrupt business model. And that, that is particularly true in the enforcement and infractions process. So we'll keep an eye on that. But again, this is going to be a great segue into this next episode that's going to launch the analysis of 2019 to the present. So with that, I'll just go ahead and end it. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.